Thanks, uh, thanks, Stuart. It's great to, um, great to have that uh, passage so well read for us. Uh, we, we're starting our series, well, we're continuing our series that we've started, uh, considering who Jesus is. Jesus is, how would you complete the sentence? Has anyone had a, a live firing exercise yet? Testing it out with someone in the community, say, hey, we're doing this thing at church, Jesus is, how would you finish the sentence? That's what I want to encourage you to do over the course of this term. Just ask people, what, what are their responses? What would they say? How would they finish that sentence? Jesus is, today we're looking at Jesus is love. And I'm going to pray that God would help us to, uh, to consider this well and uh, to consider who Jesus is. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your son. Thank you for this word that's before us this morning. We thank you, Father, that we can hear it in safety And we pray, Father, that in this quiet and safe place that you might open our ears, soften our hearts, and that by your Holy Spirit you might change us so that we would know and love this truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So my plan for how we're going to attack uh, these uh, topics, Jesus is, and we've got a variety of preachers who are all prepared, uh, is my approach is going to be take a moment to walk in the mindset of the person who might say this. So take a moment to walk in their shoes, consider what the Bible has to say to us on this topic, and then work out what we should do if that, in fact, is the case. So let's start with uh, walk a little bit in this worldview. The the view we're looking at this morning is someone who would say, Jesus is love. Okay, now that sounds like a pretty good answer, doesn't it? Jesus is love. So let's think about that, that mindset a little. Now, I don't know, there's probably a couple of ways to say it. I reckon some of you who are Christians here might say that as your answer. So you might say, who's Jesus? Jesus is love. And that means that you have a really clear idea of who Jesus is. But many people who would answer Jesus is love might have a, uh, a slightly less clear uh, picture of who Jesus is. And having a slightly less clear picture, it's more of a vibe. Okay, Who's Jesus? Jesus. Jesus' love, I guess. And, and I, I'm probably being a little bit, a little bit disrespectful, but I, but I think it's more, it's a feeling thing, right? So um, not quite kittens, but the, the idea is there's something nice generally about Jesus. What's Jesus? Jesus' is love. Okay, it's a, it's a feeling thing. It's a vibe thing. Alternatively, it might be Jesus' is love because, hey, man, everything is love. Okay, so there's a sense, and it might just be a kind of really relaxed, kind of more hippie kind of approach to say, it's an attitude. Yeah, everything, Jesus is love, sure. Of course he is. It's not a very powerful place to build your world on, but that's an attitude. Uh, Thirdly, it it may be, and probably a little bit more sympathetically if if I'm being honest, it may just be that I like to think of God as love. It's more to do with our imagination than the actuality. So, so rather than saying I'm utterly convinced that God is love or that Jesus is love, it's really just, well, if I ever think about God, I like to think of God as loving. And so it's not based on much, but it's what we would like God to be. God is love may just be an expression of our imagination rather than even our experience. But you know what? I think this... There's something true there. 
we're onto something. The people who say that God is love are responding to something that's actually accessible to all of us. You see, if we think about the universe, and I'm hugely underqualified to do this, Luke, Luke is here and, and they spent uh, an evening last year having a go at this, but if you think about the universe without God in it, it is vast, unimaginably vast. It's cold, and there are some hot points in it, but it's largely cold. And if you take God out of it, it's very mechanical. So there are atoms, there are forces. How many forces are there? Look, there's eight numbers, five, five forces, and eight numbers of four numbers. Great, four constants. Uh, yeah, that'd be good, mate. I'll, I'll go and get my remedial classes. I was listening to it on an audio book, and I've got to go back and revise. The, 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 the point here is that... Uh, if you take God out of it, there's kind of a mechanical way that the world sort of works and the universe works around it and you can end up with a textbook that's about physics and yet, and yet. That's the world that the atheist would tell us that we live in, a, a, a cold, mechanistic universe. And yet, here's what I know from talking with people like you. And yet, we have this sneaking suspicion that there's this thing called laughter. Where's the atoms and the physics for that? There's this order in the universe. Why does it have to be like that? Why does it have to be ordered? Why isn't it just chaotic? There's a profound beauty in the universe. And more than that, more than that, I respond to the beauty I see in the universe. So when someone puts up a picture of a um, passion fruit flower, has anyone seen one of these recently? A passion fruit flower, you look at that and you go, there is something extraordinary about this. It moves me. Now that's just a waste if we're atoms in the universe. It, it has no purpose, but it moves me. I'm connected to it. And then there's this crazy thing called joy that stirs my heart, that helps me to delight in the laughter, the order, the beauty, the relationships that are in the world around me. These things aren't found in a physics textbook, but they are part of my lived reality. And so as I talk about a universe like that, I end up stumbling across this thing called love. See, when we say Jesus is love, I think we're acknowledging there's something here that is much bigger than pure mechanics and dark, empty spaces. There's something right about it. But we have a much better place to find out where it comes from. We should consider what the Bible actually has to say and to see whether what we, what, what we feel actually reflects the reality that's there. Well, I don't want to jump in too fast, but have a look at this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we have this. We should consider what the Bible has to say, right? In 1 John 4, 8, it says this, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So the very simple point to make here is it's revealed in his word that God is love. It's right there in front of us. God tells us in his word that he is love. Well, that's helpful. It's, it's not just speculation. We can answer that Jesus is love because we know God, as he shows himself to us, is love. Why? Because he told us. That's a bit obvious, isn't it? But there it is. 
right there in front of us. Oh, we're talking about obvious things. I'm going to have a Q&A at the end of this. So if anything is not obvious, please ask me a question at the end. That'd be great. The, the second place that we see this, and I think I pulled this passage up a little while ago. In Exodus, God is talking to Moses and he's revealing his name to Moses. He's talking about who he is. And so God describes himself this way in the Old Testament. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. This is him talking about his name. The Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in, that's for you, love, and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now here it is, it's all the way back there in Exodus that God is love. In fact, it's bound up in his name, how he reveals himself. God being love has been there right from the start in his communication to his world. We saw it in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. In fact, let's have a look at that a little bit more closely. Love is actually at the heart of the way God has been dealing with the universe. This is my picture overview of the Bible. Here's the Old Testament, the New Testament. If we break up the themes of the Bible, it kind of looks a little bit like this, in in my imagination anyway. They're, They're the pictures to describe the high points in the Old and New Testament. I want you to know that in the Old Testament, God is a God filled with love. It's how he engages with his people. In fact, he talks to them as if they're his bride. It says in Genesis 12, when God is talking with Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says that the covenant blessing will overflow into the whole universe. Later on, much later on in the book of Ezekiel, we see God talking about how he found Israel. It's it's an incredibly moving passage. And then it's a very scary passage, so you might want to read it at home later. But in Ezekiel 16, it talks about God wandering along and finding Israel like a little baby kicking about in its blood, lying in the field. And he picks it up and he cleans it off and he cares for it and he helps this young child to grow up. And when the child is mature, he says, I've loved you, I've cared for you, you'll be my wife. I will marry and care for you. And so it says there in Ezekiel 16, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So the beautiful picture is the way God expresses his love in the Old Testament is he says, I love you, I will marry you. He says, I'll commit myself to you. Now, not all marriages go well, and this marriage is particularly marked by sin, And by Israel saying, husband, I don't want you. I'm not going to be faithful to you. In fact, a mate of mine uh, preaching on this said one day, he said, it's like Israel gets married to God and then wants to take the picture of a former girlfriend and put it up in the bedroom. How would that work out? He said, you love other gods is what ends up happening, Israel. You love other gods. You're not faithful to your husband, God. But he remains faithful faithful to you and so all the way through the old testament we see that god is a god of love he's a god of covenant love commitment and faithfulness even in the face of unfaithfulness on behalf of israel 
But it's interesting, as we think about love, we've actually got lots of things wrong when it comes to the love of God. You may not have known about his covenant love. I want to show you from the reading we looked at in Mark that there are lots of things that we, maybe you've got these right, but, but lots of people get wrong about the love of God. Come with me to Mark. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 10. And uh, I want to think with you about, uh, about the mistakes that we often make about the love of God. Well, this is a beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, a beautiful picture. And, and we, know, we know that God's a God of love because we just saw it in the Bible. Who does God love? Well, God love, must love children, mustn't he? And he must love children because they're cute, aren't they? Some of you are chuckling. They don't stay cute. Is that right? Is that what I'm hearing? Don't tell our young parents. Uh, might not be true. Uh, we could think, we could think, you see in this passage in Mark 10, we could think the reason that Jesus loves children is because they're cute, they're beautiful, they're innocent and lovely. Who can say children are innocent and lovely? I don't know, people who haven't been parents yet, perhaps. Uh, here's the thing, there's actually a surprise in this. We're wrong about why God loves kids. Ha- have a look with me at verses 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That means Jesus was smoking angry. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So we think, ah, see, cute kids, get the kingdom, no problems. But he goes on and explains, verse 15, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. See, the point isn't that children are cute. It's that children are trusting, that children are wholehearted in their devotion. Jesus is looking at the kids and saying, I see in them something that I want the adults to display. He loves them because they aren't cynical. God loves, God sees in children wholehearted trust and he delights in it. And he delights in it. What's God's love like? He loves those who trust him wholeheartedly. And uh, there's no more, uh, no more beautiful picture, isn't it? I tell you, if you will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it. How do kids receive gifts? Well, that's how we should receive the kingdom. Okay. Yeah, the kingdom, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Give your kid a child, they're not like chucking it over the shoulder going, oh. They, they can't wait to rip into it. And I'd encourage you, rip into the kingdom like a little kid. Wholehearted devotion is what God is looking for. Secondly, I think we're often wrong about who it is that God loves. See, we can look at our world and we can go, oh, they're successful. Maybe their family's more together than your family. Secretly, I actually don't think anyone's family is together as it looks on the outside, so just let that get in your head. But we look at them and we go, oh, they're really successful, or maybe they're really wealthy. And you think, well, God must love them. Isn't fate smiling on them? God must love them. Look at my life. Anyone had these thoughts? So I want to say to you, we're wrong about who God loves. We're We're wrong to judge it by outward success. We're wrong to judge it by outward success. And we know that because Jesus met a man who was outwardly successful. Have a look with me at verses 17 to 19. As Jesus started on his way from the kids' fiasco, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees 
before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Here's the thing. The guy runs up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do? And he says, well, why do you call me good? There's no one who's good. Jesus is good. He's being a little bit tricky. He's trying to reflect back to the guy. Actually, this category of good people is wrong. And the shocking thing that he's going to say to them is, there is no one who is good. And it's intriguing. I think our youth group did this the other night. But if you have a look at the commandments, uh, Jesus actually leaves some commandments out. Did you notice this? He doesn't give them all ten. And he leaves out loving the Lord your God, having no idols, um, and uh, a stack of other ones there, and, what, and, and coveting. And so here's a man who's rich, and he thinks he's doing great. And God wants to say to him, do you know what? You aren't as good as you think you are. There is no one who is good. Here's a third mistake we make about the love of God. How would it feel to be here, do you think? Paris, summer, sounds all right. If it's not making you very happy, go to your happy place, okay? Wherever your place is, go there. Be standing there in the sun with a smile on your face thinking how wonderful, okay? Does the love of God feel like that? If I'm, if I'm in the love of God, does it feel like that? I, I want you to know it's quite often that we're wrong about what it feels like to be loved by God. Let me explain from the, from the passage here. Have a look at verses 20 to 21. So here's the man. He's throwing himself on his knees before Jesus. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, no one's good except God alone. He's still listening, right? And Jesus has then laid off all the commandments, right? And said, well, here's some commandments. And listen to what the man says. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Not all the commandments, but all the ones you just mentioned, Jesus. I think I'm doing okay on them. I've kept all of them since I was a boy. Verse 21, this is so important. Jesus looked at him and what? What does it say there? Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. See, how did it feel to be loved by Jesus if you were this man? Are you with me? Can you see the challenge? See, the incredible thing is God's love may be challenging to us. Here's a man on his knees before Jesus. You reckon Jesus would love this bloke, wouldn't you? He's on his knees. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus looks at him and loves him and then says the hardest thing this guy has ever heard in his entire life. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. So what does it feel like to be loved by God? What's only ever happy days and sunshine and flowers and puppies? That's what it feels like to be loved by God. If I'm truly loved by God, I'll be having a good time all the time. That's what it means to feel under the love of God. Well, here's a man who we're told explicitly was loved by Jesus and it's the worst day of his life. It's 
So, so here's, our, here's our guy. I think we're wrong about how it feels to be loved by God. In fact, it goes on to tell us how he felt. Have a look at verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's a shocking story. Everyone around would have thought that this guy's riding the wave of God's favor because he's rich. And Jesus turns the whole thing upside down and says, mate, if you can give all that away, you can have riches in heaven and come follow me. What does it feel like to be loved by God? Well, at some point, it could be that your loving God could leave you sad, convicted in your sin, challenged in your selfishness. That's a surprise, isn't it? We didn't anticipate that, I imagine. Has anyone had to thread one of these recently? I'm always amazed to think that um, Jan and Liz are so good at their needlework, but I don't know how you guys do it. I find it a struggle still to get that little thing through the needle. This is still a small opening. You know, it was a small opening in Jesus' time, the eye of a needle. It's still a small opening today. I was going to go with transistors on on microchips and they were going to be at, you know, subatomic level and all that sort of stuff. I thought that's boring. Uh, Eyes of needles are still small. Have a listen. We are wrong about how easy it is for God to love us. Uh, Verses 23 to 27. Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Do you know who he's talking to? Oran Park in Australia in February. How hard it is for the rich, he says, to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. We think it's easy to get in God's favor. And he says, if you're rich, it's actually incredibly difficult for you to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is harder for a large moving object. You know what the largest moving object they had was? Camel, good. Smallest opening, needle. Okay, let's... Let's finesse this up a little bit, okay? Here's the uh, Ellie lady, 247 metres long, weighing quite a bit of weight. Um, I want you to put that through the eye of a needle. Easy or hard? It's better than hard, isn't it? In fact, he goes on and he says, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? How do oil tankers go through the eye of needles? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible with God. God has a plan to overcome impossible, but you and I need to know that we're not going to get in because we're rich, because we're successful, because we're, well, let me just give you the little summary. See, we're talking about the love of God. And on, on, the right, uh, sorry, on the left-hand side there, we're going to talk about what we think might get us in. And on the right, we're going to talk about what God says. We might think we're going to get in because you're cute. Some of you are really good looking. You're wonderful. Okay? It might be because you're cute. You might think, God loves me. Of course you should love me. I love me when I look me in the mirror. And the Bible says, Jesus, no one's good. There's no one who's truly good. You might think, I should get in because I'm successful. I'm actually doing pretty well at this Christianity gig. I I, I go to church regularly. I've got good kids. They're good enough. They're not causing me any grief at the moment. I'm doing pretty well in life. God, you should love me. And he says, you know what? Your riches, your very success might be a trap because you'll trust in it more than me. 
You won't be that wholehearted child receiving the kingdom of God because you're hanging on to your wealth and you won't be able to open your hands to embrace Jesus. We might think, I know I'm in the love of God because I feel happy. Now, some of you do and you are in the love of God and I would say to you, go for gold. That's wonderful news. But I think if you haven't yet known the love of God and you think being happy is what it will always feel like to experience the love of God, this says no. God may speak hard things to you that are for your good. And we would think, if I'm under the love of God, he'll do what I think is best, right? God, if you love me, I know what I want. You should do what I want for me. And he says, I'm not going to do that. Because I love you, I'm going to do what it is best for each one as I determine, is what he says. And you know what? That might not be exactly what you want. But it will be out of his love and care. So how does he prove his love? Well, he does it incredibly. In that John 10 passage we saw, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, go a little bit further back in your Bibles, John, John 10. In John 10, we see the love of God. In uh, John 10, 4, he says, when he had brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech. The Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They'll come in, they'll go out, and will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He says in verse 11 there, I'm the good shepherd. How does God show us his love? Well, when Jesus walks among us, he said, you know what I am? I'm a shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I have come to show my love to you by calling you to follow me to a full life. If you take Jesus out of this equation, if you go to that dark, vast, empty universe and you seek to find life to the full, I'm telling you, you'll never find it. Jesus says, I've come in the flesh that you might find life and have it to the full. The first way he proves his love is by coming in flesh to tell us, come follow me. The second way he shows us his love is on the cross. And we see uh, in verses 11 to 16, on the good shepherd, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. See, Jesus says, I'll show you my love. I'm not going to run away in the face of evil. I'm going to put my body between you and the wolf. I will die for you. I'm the good shepherd. And he shows us his love on the cross by dying for us in our place. Jesus confirms his love to us by physically dying for our sins. And thirdly, wonderfully, he shows his love for us by rising from the dead. The reason my father loves me, he says in verse 17, is that I lay down my life, awesome, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. See, we say Jesus is love. And when we say that, we say that because he demonstrated it, because he taught it. And here's the reason he can be loved today. He's not still dead. He was raised to life again. How can Jesus be love? 
He could be a loving idea. He could be a loving person in history. But I'm saying he is love. Why? Because he's alive today. He can be loved because he's alive today. Because he's conquered death for us. So I'm saying Jesus is love. I think we've made a pretty good case from that from the Bible. What should we do with it? Remember three ways to think about what we should do with it. Uh, There's an impossible thing. What can we no longer do if that's true? What's a possible thing? Something that we could do because that's true. And then what's a necessary thing? What must we do if that's true? Well, let's look at the impossible one first. What can't we do anymore? You can't keep your blurry vision of Jesus. You can't hang on to the kittens. You have to reject the kittens, all right? Get rid of the kittens. Get the real Jesus. We must reject the, the, the blurry and lazy vision of Jesus. Okay, it's impossible to hang on to that old vision if you've met him in the scriptures this morning. What about the possible application? What could we do? Well, here's something that we could do. You and I could stop activating our inner lawyer, right? Which is the one where we say, Jesus, of course you love me because I'm good because I've kept five of the commandments since I was a boy. I'm a little bit sketchy. I don't have a great memory. I think I've kept five of them since I was a boy. And he goes, well, you know there's another five. And we go, I'm not thinking about them at the moment. I'm doing pretty well. And I would say, stop activating your inner lawyer. The reality is, he says, there's no one who's good. That's the reality. So stop activating your inner lawyer. If you're still in that stage, it's possible you need to do that. Secondly, you might need to rethink God's consistency. When we say God is love, some of you will think he only became love in the New Testament when Jesus turned up. I hope I've showed you this morning, he's been loved from the beginning and he will be loved into all eternity because Jesus is raised from the dead. We need to rethink our consistency. So for some of you, it's possible you can revisit the data and reconsider both yourself and Jesus in light of what we've heard today. Here's the necessary application, what I think all of us have to do. We have to sharpen up our view of what it means for Jesus to be loved. We have to deal with the real Jesus' love in all its beauty and for some of us, it's ugliness when he speaks to us hard things. When he speaks to us hard things. So who's Jesus? Well, today, Jesus is love. And I want to say to you this morning, some of you will have heard that Jesus is love and you'll go away sad because you've heard him saying, give up what you are clinging to in order that you might receive the kingdom. Some of you will meet the fact that Jesus is love and you'll decide to walk away sad. I pray it's not so, but it's possible. Some of you this morning will have heard that Jesus is love and you can't wait to put your hand back into the hand of the Saviour and know his saving love. Know his saving love. I'm going to pray this morning that our response would be to take hold of the one who has revealed himself to be love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, our Saviour. Thank you that you are about love from the beginning. Thank you for your faithfulness, Father, when we were unfaithful to you. And thank you, Father, that you buy back at great cost those who, you are en- who were your enemies and make them your children. We love you, God, and pray that we might be refreshed in a vision of how loving you are in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well... We'll give it a go. Does anyone have any questions? Things that they'd like to follow up. Maybe it's stuff that you've heard this, this week. As you were talking to people, someone said X, Y, or Z to you, and you think, how would I answer that? 
just want to give you a moment to uh, ask those sort of questions now. So has anyone got a question? Happy to have you ask away. We do have a question? Yep, great. Okay, Freddie. Yeah, in the... When he says, you know, the commands don't do this and that, what does defraud mean? Yes, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. What is defraud? That's in the Mark passage, isn't it, mate? Yeah. Uh, what verse is that? Uh, 19. Uh, verse 19. Uh, you know the commandments, X, one Z, and it says, do not defraud. Uh, I think that's a head-scratcher for a whole bunch of people. Jesus, where did defraud come from? Uh, we know the Ten Commandments. It's actually not in the Ten Commandments. So uh, when he says, you know the commandments, we naturally go to, you know the Ten Commandments. Um, I think there's stuff about um, charging unfair uh, interest um, or misleading or lying and that's probably some sort of corruption of, uh, co- collection of those two ideas. Um, I, I didn't actually do the work of finding out exactly where I could place that in the Old Testament, but if you've picked it up as a question, you're on the right track because it's not one of our regular Ten Commandments. Uh, and maybe it just means that he was a scrupulous businessman. Okay, So Jesus puts that one in there, do not defraud, and he'd actually been a good businessman. Right? So he hadn't defrauded people. And so he's able to say, I've kept all these commandments since I was a boy. Okay? He doesn't have coveting in there, though, however, which is intriguing, and I suspect he was foul of that one. D- does that make sense? So I think that's what's going on there. But, yeah, good question. Tom, you had a question? Thanks, Stu. Uh, I've heard that the English language is quite limited and it just has one word for love and that, Sometimes that doesn't maybe express... Yeah. And different people will have different ideas because English is a bit limited. Yeah. Uh, if you want to go home and Google it tonight, you can go. There's different, three different words for love in Greek and all that sort of stuff. I, 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 like, I think there's value in, uh, in looking at them, uh, but the reality is I only work in English and not in Greek. And so I, uh, I love that that exists, but I think if you really want to go to town on that stuff, uh, what ends up happening is... I end up being um, a high priest of the Bible to you. So when it comes to, we find the word love here, what you all do is you all look at me and say, what does that really mean, right? And so what happens inadvertently is I distance you from being able to read the Bible. When it says love, think of love in in all of its different ways. And the Greeks had some better ways to refine the different directions of that, brotherly love and erotic love and and those sort of things. But the reality is our English only has one word for it. And so all I'd say to you guys is think of the breadth of love, okay, and don't necessarily look to me to tell you what the Greek word is. Is that that okay? I want to keep you reading your Bibles and engaging with it as as they are. One more question? Alec. Uh, Having just read through Proverbs... Does it lead to what this guy was thinking, that um, if I do this, then I'll be rewarded and I'm good? That's a really good question. So we read Proverbs. Proverbs has a whole bunch of really good wisdom for life in it. And it seems like if you run your way in a good, ordered way, you'll be under the favour of God. Couldn't we draw that conclusion from the Old Testament? Is that basically the question? I think the answer to that is yes, okay, but it assumes you're in a covenant relationship. So the people of God, if they live their lives in a godly and ordered way, will find the favour of God. Did they win the favour of God by living their lives in an ordered way? No. They were saved by God into covenant by his initiative and grace. Is a a good and ordered life better than a chaotic and ungodly one? Sure. 
But do you win God's favour by doing good and righteous things? No. Is that right? So you don't become a Christian by being good, but it would be natural that those who have been won at great cost by God should live their lives in accordance with what he would want. Does that make sense? Great. We'll stop there. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so, so if you want to find out about transubstantiation, you need to do P2C, see Alec and uh, Annabelle at the end of the service. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, that's a terrible curveball because I'm, we're about to do the Lord's Supper. So, um, uh, so I'm just going to let that one go through to the keeper. Here's, here's, um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, look, uh, we could talk about transubstantiation, couldn't we, Jeff? Um, Look, here's what we say. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to come up on the screen. In fact, I might even just reject all of it today, okay, in order to deal with that. Here's what I want you to know. We have some very simple things in front of us. Do you know where they came from? They came from the shop. Jeff, what loaf is this? Kathy, what is it? Do you know? tip-top life. Fantastic. From the tip-top bakery. How wonderful. Uh, Here's what I want you to know. You probably have bread like this at home. It hasn't been on the stage at church, but it's the same bread. We have some crackers for people who like uh, gluten-free things. I don't think they're from any special shop, but they are specially bereft of gluten, which is great. We have have juice here, uh, which is a combination of grape and various other bits and pieces, which comes in a bottle. Now, what are we doing? What? We've got little plastic cups. How quaint. Why do we do that? Well, it's just easy for us. It's convenient for us to do communion in this way. Um, we could all stand together around it. You could come and kneel. We could have a uh, silver cup with port in it if you wanted. But here's what would happen. Here's what would happen. Nothing special would happen by virtue of having silver cups. Nothing special would happen if this bread had been in a gold container prior to being put out on the table, if it wasn't covered in glad wrap. It is so important that you get this. These are ordinary elements, but they are set aside for an extraordinary purpose. I'm going to tell you what the purpose is from the Bible. We are doing something that Jesus instituted for us and uh, that the Apostle Paul... Uh, reflects on in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, do you know why he broke it? He was saying to them, My body will be broken for you tomorrow. So we break this bread in order that we might share it together, in order that it might mirror what is going to happen to me physically tomorrow. So we break the bread. And then, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, was Jesus' blood in the cup? Well, I'll save you the speculation. The answer is, it was not. There was wine in the cup. Do you know what's in here? Not wine, juice. Why wine? Well, there's all sorts of wonderful passages in the Old Testament about wine and its place for joy in the hearts of people. But I tell you what, it looks like what? Looks like blood. 
What's going to happen to Jesus the next day after the Lord's Supper? His blood will be spilled for us. So what does he do? He says, take these simple things, take these things that are on the table in front of us and turn them to an extraordinary purpose. Do this regularly, he says, to remember my body broken for you. Drink this regularly to remember my blood shed for you. And in so doing, we will remember, honor, give thanks and be encouraged by the work of Jesus. Take these ordinary things and add faith and you and I will find encouragement for our hearts. They are not becoming anything that they weren't before except by faith they're becoming for us the means by which we remember the wonderful way Jesus has washed us and made us clean. Make sense? Amen. Well, let us then partake in these bits of bread and juice. The way we're going to do it, we're going to pass them around. And uh, I can ask uh, Alec and Annabelle and Jeff and Kathy if you guys can come up. And maybe Terry and Marina, do you guys want to come up and help out? Um, what we're going to do is we're going to pass them around. As we pass them around, can you take them and hang on to them? That'd be great. Kathy, can you go to the front on this side here? Terry, can you start at the front in the middle here? Marina, can you start on the front at that side there? Alec, if you can go to the back, mate, and start from the back in the cry room, that'd be great. Oh, thanks, so. Anna.